everyone. Welcome to the Significant Strike Podcast. I am your host, Soft Weekly, and with me, as always, is the guy that can count to 20 with his socks off. Val, how's it going tonight? That, that's the most interesting intro you've given me. <laughs> uh, it's, it's going good. It's going good. All right, so... uh we got an interesting card. There's some, I don't know if I want to call them stinkers, but not some uh, real exciting fights coming on this week. But there are a few good ones we're interested in. But first of all, we got to go with the wrap-up. What happened last week, buddy? Oh, shoot. I forgot about that. Um, okay, yeah, well, it was easy. We had, one, we had two plays. One of them, Ronnie Lawrence had apparently cramping that uh, was caused by the weight cut, I guess. And although he made the weight, He's, they, he said he still had to go to a hospital because it was that bad and the fight was off. So hopefully they remake that fight because that's a fun fight. And that sucks for Trevin Jones because Ronnie Lawrence was like his fifth opponent. He had his opponent changed so many times and that sucks for him. Um, and then we had Ryan Benoit who for uh, one of our two-unit plays and it didn't work out. Uh, Zaruk Adeshev, I will say he looked amazing, but his game plan was good. He landed calf kicks from the get-go, which really debilitated Benoit. Um, Benoit did knock him down, which I thought was enough to steal round one, but he didn't do enough in the second and third rounds because he was so limited, and Adeshev just kept retreating, 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 so that, I mean, there was not much action in the, the second and third round. No, and he really did destroy that leg. Um, It was evident before the first round was over that that leg was hurt. Yeah. And then his... His plan of backing up worked very well because when your leg's that battered, you really don't have the, uh, you know, the moves to chase a guy around the ring like yeah. that. He was he was having to switch stands. I still thought he did pretty well despite, but uh, that leg was obviously brutalized. It reminded me, those kicks were heavy. It reminded me of uh, old, sca- old school Aldo stuff, just how hard those kicks were. And basically it only took like four to, before the damage was there, you know, they were very powerful kicks. Yeah, that's how it works with these calf kicks, um, which we'll get into later on this card when we talk about Pedro Munoz. But also, I mean, Benoit made the mistake of, like you said, he was chasing him. He wasn't cutting the cage. Yeah. Uh, and and every time he caught up to him, he swung, and Adeshev kept moving because he wasn't cutting him off. So Adeshev just kept circling, and he kept missing. He landed some strikes, but not enough. Adeshev won. That decision. Um, well, yeah, so we take our lumps when we move on to this week. But first, I uh, got to say, so last week on the Bellator podcast, the 15 uh, Significant Strike 15.5, let's call it, uh, we talked about Brent Primus and how we hope to have him on uh, after we lost a split decision in his fight. Um, we're not having him on this week because he's he's doing his own thing, of course, but we'll have him on in the future, we hope, right? Yeah, um, I did talk to him, uh, I think maybe Monday. Sunday or Monday, I, I can't remember, but I did talk to him, and he's definitely still in, but um, I, I feel like that was a tough loss. I mean, you and I discussed it, and like I told Brent, um, you know, I'm not going to bitch about the refs because it was a close fight, but I thought he was more aggressive even though he was on his back most of the time. I thought he was a more offensive fighter, and I know it was a tough loss for him, and I, I knew he didn't want to be on three days later, you know, to talk about it. So uh, hopefully next week, but he still is in to be on the show.
Hello? Yeah, I'm here. You, you, you cut out. I couldn't tell when the whole the whole thing you're cutting cut it out, so I couldn't hear where you were. I uh, put a marker or whatever. Um, but yeah, I I think even on the feet that Brent did better, but most of the fight was on the ground. He was just setting up omoplatas and uh, Mamedov was just escaping them. But that's last week. This is this week, so let's get into it. All right, let's go. Where do you want to start? I'll start real quick, just briefly going through some of the undercard. Uh, Miles Johns versus Anderson Dos Santos. Miles Johns is pretty good. I mean, he's not amazing because he hasn't really fought anyone amazing yet. But he did beat Adrian Yanez in the LFA by split decision. Uh, He lost to Mario Batista by flying knee, who's a pretty good opponent. And then he... Knocked out Kevin Natividad, who's a lower-level opponent. So he did what he was supposed to do there with a pretty impressive knockout. Um, I think he's the much better fighter here because his opponent, Anderson Dos Santos, is 36. is has only beaten Martin Day in the UFC, and Martin Day is genuinely awful. He lost to Nadine Armani and Andre Ewell. He absorbs his stats. Uh... He has 59% defense and only 26% striking accuracy. He gets outlanded by almost three strikes per minute. While Miles Johns outlands his opponent opponents um, by about 1.5 strikes per minute. So on paper, it looks great for Miles Johns. But there's the odds are minus 200. And uh, there's the issue of low sample size for both of them. So just those stats aren't enough. And But... The tape does confirm what you see on the stats. I mean, Miles Johns is a good striker. Dos Santos isn't. Dos Santos attempts a lot of takedowns, but lands very few of them. Although he does set a high pace. Like, he's always throwing, and he misses so many strikes because he throws so many. So, I think Miles Johns wins this, but I don't think there's enough value there. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with all that ins- assessment. And uh, on most of the books... uh he he's even become more of the favorite, which uh, you know the, the money is moving in on him to make it go that way. But there are places if you would have picked up on it when the fights first came out, there's places where you could have got him for 184 or something, and then I, I probably would have been in for a half a unit or something at that price. But when you start getting up into the 225, you know, range, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um. So, next fight, just real quick, Manel Cape. He was the Ryzen champion at his weight class, uh, which I think, I don't know if Ryzen even, I think Flyweight and Ryzen, definitely Flyweight in the UFC. Um, he beat Ian McCall, who was an old UFC guy. He lost to Kyoji Horiguchi, who's one of the best, the best Flyweight in the world outside the UFC. Maybe the best Bantamweight in the world outside the UFC. Um, he lost to Kai Asakura, who was the rising champ for a while, but then he avenged that and beat him. So he was doing, he was, he was hot shit, you know, coming out of Ryzen. Uh, a lot of finishes. His last three fights in Ryzen were all knockouts. He has a few submissions also. He, he knocked out Ian McCall. Oh, it was technically a, a doctor stoppage, but he need him so hard that, that the doctor had to stop it because of a cut. Um, but in the UFC, I mean, his first fight was a hard one and Alejandro Pantoja, Really good fighter. He beat Brandon Moreno. Um, he's the only guy to finish Brandon Moreno, although that was on the Ultimate Fighter. Pantoja is just an all-around good fighter and a top-five fighter in this weight class. He could earn a title shot soon. The rematch against Moreno would be something that he could sell them on to earn his title shot. Um, and 
the story was that just Mike Minel Cop didn't do enough. But then in his next fight, he fought Mateus Nicolau, who's a decent fighter. But I feel that Cop is the better fighter. But he all still lost this fight, although it was by split decision, and it was the same story. He just didn't do enough. So we look at this fight. He's fighting Ode Osborne, who it's interesting because he's coming down from featherweight to flyweight. But he already has fought at flyweight once, where he knocked out Jerome Rivera, who is like the worst fighter in the UFC, in my opinion, in 26 seconds. But at least he made the weight successfully. But he sh- he will still have a size advantage. I mean, he he's two inches taller and, and has four inches of reach. And he's just a bigger frame than Menel Cop. But he's a worse fighter overall. So I would like Menel Cop to win. But he, again, the same same story as the last one. Uh, the Dos Santos Miles Johns fight. I don't trust Manal Cop to do enough because he just hasn't done enough. But he should come out swinging because he should realize, hey, I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna get cut, and they're paying me good money because I was the Rising champ. I've got to fight well and finally beat somebody, or the UFC is gonna cut me. So he should know what he has to do. But you can't. I can't bet on shoulds. Right. Right, I I see that the same way. Uh, I was a big fan of uh, Ryzen, what they were doing for a while. I haven't I haven't yeah. I haven't followed them much anymore. But uh, I liked what they were doing. They had some quality guys there, and I think he he was impressive there. But yeah, he hasn't shown anything in the UFC yet, really. Yeah, I mean, knocking guys out at flyweight is great, but he expected to do that in the UFC, and so his volume was low because he was looking for that one big shot, and it just hasn't worked out for him. But the weird thing is in Ryzen, you can wear shoes. Um, and so he, one of his excuses after his first fight against Pantoja was, oh, well, I wasn't used to not wearing shoes in the octagon. Like, like, oh, so you didn't train without shoes. You, you went, you knew you were going to fight without shoes and you never trained without it. Come on. That's one of the fighters make a lot of bad excuses, but that was one of the worst I've ever heard. Yeah. And, uh, I just really don't know. Uh, I'm sure some gyms do, but I'm willing to bet most gyms probably train without shoes as a general rule. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna be kicking, which Ryzen has all kinds of weird rules, like like Pride had some weird rules too. But yeah. Um. Anyway, next fight is Karolina Kovalkovich, former title challenger, versus Jessica Penne, who, although she wasn't a title challenger, she did fight Ioana at one point. Um. Which that was just. I mean, the, if you she talk got about TKO'd in the third May, there was. Uh, Valentina versus Priscilla Cachoeira as the worst like beatdown, but Joanna versus Penny wasn't that far behind because Jessica Penny is a terrible striker. Uh, by numbers MMA's uh, striking efficiency versus expectation metric, she has I think the third lowest ever in in UFC history uh, at negative twenty percent, which that's that's a lot. I mean, your average bad striker has like minus two or three percent. Um, so she got knocked out by Joanna, and then somehow fought Andrade, got knocked out by Andrade. I mean, she was fighting in Invicta. She was, I think, the Invicta champ. She was beating a lot of girls and submitting them, too. But she was lost to Michelle Watterson, lost to Carlos Barza, went to split decision with Randa Marcos. So the fact that she fought Joanna and Andrade back-to-back was crazy. And she still lost to Dan- Danielle Taylor, who's a much lower level in her next fight, before getting caught for some sort of substance. I think it was the same thing they caught John Jones with, except for John Jones was a champion, so they gave him a lot of leeway. 
Penne, they didn't. They wanted to make an example out of her. Gave her a two-year, I think 20-month exactly was the suspension. So, um, and she fought it for a while, so it got extended even more because of the litigation. Uh, and she returned after fighting in 2017 against Danielle Taylor. She finally returned in 2021 against Lupita Godinez, who I was decently high on as a good striker. And I thought Lupita won that fight, but cause, just because of damage. But uh, Penne was able to backpack her and kind of, kind of try like almost a flying triangle. She would get in the clinch and then uh, jump up and try to triangle Lupita. And she wasn't doing any damage, but she held Lupita there for vast lengths of that fight, and that was enough to get her the split decision on the judges' scorecards, which again I disagreed with. But she is a good grappler. She has an array of submissions. Um, her takedowns, not as good. But that's the main question here. I mean, we, most of you should know what Karolina Kovalkovich's game is. She's a striker. Uh, she challenged for the title against Joanna, lost. Um, and now she's on a four-fight losing streak. But at one point, she was beating uh, Inoue, Marcos, Rose Nama Yunus, she won a split decision against to beat Feliz Herrig, Jody Escabel, but she has not looked good in her last four fights, even against a really high level of competition, because that was Andrade, who knocked her out, Michelle Watterson, decision, Alexa Grasso, who's now a top contender at 125, decision, and Yan Xiaonan, decision. Um, and that Xiaonan fight, she looked bad physically. She looked, like, gaunt and, and just weak. Um, and I learned that she, A, was dealing with suicidal thoughts and depression, so, I mean, I, I hope she's better from that, and also hyperthyroidism, so I hope she's better from that, too, uh, and I've heard some things about her, you know, being in a better place, and she even retired for a bit there, and I think she wouldn't have returned if she didn't truly feel like she was good, like she was good mentally and physically, but you just don't know with fighters, so, uh, I think that... Kovalkovic should be able to stuff Jessica Penny's takedowns because Penny only has a 23% takedown accuracy. I mean, she was only able to take down Lupi Godinez three times, or one time, sorry, in that fight and got taken down herself three times. So it's not a good sign when even against a low-level grappler, a low-level takedown defense a low-level defensive wrestler, sorry. Uh, she wasn't able to get many takedowns, and uh, she got outgrappled by certain metrics. Uh, so I think Carolina, who has decent enough takedown defense over the course of her career, uh, she has 75% takedown defense. I think she should be able to stuff Jessica Penny's takedowns, and, and the striking just isn't close. I don't have to go into the, to the metrics because, I mean, the... the analysis because penny is just an awful striker she she really is just awful i mean in that in the nicest way possible because she's still a ufc fighter but she's a grappler she's not a striker when she does strike she gets beat up yeah Kovalkovic, her whole game is striking she's not a grappler um so yeah i think Kovalkovic should win this on the feet even though she's on a four fight skid and even though she hasn't looked herself and the odds are about minus 120, 125. But, like I said, hyperthyroidism, suicidal thoughts, and depression, looking physically poor in her last fight a year and a half ago. I want to see her at 
not even at weigh-ins. It doesn't have to be at weigh-ins. Just I want to see her, you know, interview in interviews, and I want to see how she looks physically before I place a bet. So look out on Twitter for that. Yeah. Um. And I'd just like to add. Uh. Yeah. We don't need to go into Penne too much because uh, we just covered. We went through all that two months ago when she fought because she had been out for two years. So. I think we covered her pretty well, and I know everyone listening to that has listened to all our previous podcasts, so they'll be aware of the analysis we gave at that time. Um, and now, granted, she beat uh, Lapita. It was a split decision. It's another one I'm not going to complain about, but I thought it was really close. Um, if it would if it would have went the other way in Lapita's favor, I could have seen that as well. But out of Penne's last five fights. Her only two wins are by split decision, and the rest of them are all losses. You know, so if, if this turns if if this turns into any kind of striking battle and she isn't able to score uh, score repeated takedowns, I I don't see a door open of opportunity for her to win the fight. But you know, it's the UFC. Yeah, <laughs> you have to go back to Invicta in like what 2013 to find her consistently winning fights. Yes. Yes. Um, and she's she's 38, which is aging aging out. I mean, uh, Kovalkovich isn't young. She's 35, but still 38 is worse than 35. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's all for that. Just keep an eye out on the Twitter. So the next fight is Atomic Alonzo Menafield, who at one point had hype on him. I mean, his first two fights in the UFC were three-minute knockouts against Vinicius Moreira and impressively knocked out Paul Craig. I mean, that's that's a really good one. Craig obviously isn't a great striker, but he's able to get most people to the ground and play jiu-jitsu with them, and, and uh, Alonso just knocked him out. But after that fight, the hype died down because he fought decent fighters. He fought Devin... I mean, not to say Paul Craig isn't decent, but he fought... He fought other fighters that gave him more challenges that were able to last with him. He fought Devin Clark, who took him to unanimous decision. And it became clear there that if Alonzo doesn't get you out of there in the first round or maybe early second, his gas tank is going to go, is going to just totally go out, and uh, he won't be able to beat you. And and that holds true in this fight against Ed Herman. Uh, after the Devin Clark fight, which he lost by unanimous decision, he lost... Uh, Tovin St. Prue, and these two fights were just last year, so it was recent that he had a hype train. 2019, he he was being hyped. Right. Uh, and OSP hit him with a great combo. I think it was a head kick and then a left hook that just knocked him out brutally at the end of round two, but once round one was over, it was over. Um, then la- uh, this year, earlier this year on the Stipe versus Nganu card, he von fluid Fabio Charant, which... I mean, it's great to get a finish in the first round, but it doesn't say much for me because this guy, Fabio Charant, I mean, he lost his uh, Contender Series fight in 2019, got some wins in LFA, but uh, I still don't feel he's UFC level, even in a weaker division with less depth, like light heavyweight. Menafield was able to just hurt him, uh, stuff the takedown, and end up on top. I mean, I think what happened was... Uh, Charant shot, Menafield or clinched, and Menafield took him down, and then Charant just didn't let go of the guillotine, which at, it, that's like 101. If you've ever seen a Von Fluchok or know anything about it, you have to let go of that guillotine, and Chirant, uh, Menafield took what was given to him and applied the Von Flu, choked him out. So, uh, but he does have like 
extraordinary power in his hands. He is a very powerful striker, but only for one round. Meanwhile, you have Ed Herman, who has been around forever. He uh, was in the Ultimate Fighter in 2006. I mean, he's beaten he's beaten guys like Rafael Natal, Tim Bosch. Uh, he has a win over Ibrahimov recently, Patrick Cummins. There's one name on here. Oh, Brian Ebersol. He has a win over Brian Ebersol and Glover Teixeira before he was in the UFC, which those are really impressive ones back in 2004. But he's traded wins and losses for ages, losing to guys as mediocre as John Vellante, but also losing to guys like Jacare, Talas Leites, Derek Brunson. But he's put together a three-fight win streak recently, uh, knocking out Patrick Cummins, decisioning Ibrahimov, and Kamurang Mike Rodriguez, who is kind of a nobody. Um, he just has what you need to be an MMA fighter. He he's a brawler, really. Like he is one he's a bar fight guy, you know, one of those guys who you go into a bar, you get in a fight, he jumps in and beats the crap out of everybody and, and separates the fight. But he has cardio, that's the main thing here. So I, while I do think Alonzo has what it takes to get uh uh what is he, forty year old Herman out of there in round one. I'm not betting on it because the way to bet on it is by round one KO or by KO, and the odds are not great. They're still minus money for a method of victory. I like my method of methods of victory at plus money, unless they're like a sure thing. Um. So yeah, passing on this one, but that's that's the idea. I I think there's one way to play this that I might do, which is if Herman survives the first round. Look for a live line on him, and that's I'll keep an eye out for that and may tweet it out, but I don't anticipate a play on this. I, um, just to uh kind of go along with what you're saying, if Herman makes it out of the first round, um, I, I have a good feeling that he will because uh, if you look at Ed Herman's record, uh, he's only lost three times by KO, and the last one was in 2016. That was uh. That was to Krylov from a head kick. And then uh, 2015, Derek Brunson punches. But the other one was a TKO because of a knee injury. So it wasn't even a knockout. You know what I mean? And I don't, I don't see Menafield uh, throwing the leg kicks to get the knee injury. So I'm not looking for Herman to get knocked out. And as you say, if it goes past the first round, then... Uh, the tables will tilt greatly in Ed Herman's favor. Yeah, they will. But I think, I mean, the last guys with real knockout power that he fought were Brunson and Krylov. I mean, Ibrahimov is decent in that regard, but he hasn't faced a lot of knockout artists. Um, and, and he's 40. I mean, he, he, although he has put together this so, semi-impressive, I'll say, run uh, in the last three fights, I I think his expiration date is, I mean, he's kind of past it, but his full-time expiration date where he won't even just be able to be a gatekeeper of sorts, he'll be totally done with MMA, is coming up soon because he has a lot of mileage. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's been fighting in the UFC since, let me see, when was his first UFC 2006. fight? 2006. 2006, yeah. <laughs> the Ultimate Fighter, what was that? Ultimate Fighter 5 or something? Ultimate Four? Fighter 3. 3, wow. Yeah, 
So, uh, well, that's that on that. Just look out for a live line is my advice to you. To anyone listening. Um, on to the next fight, which is the first one on the card. The, the featured prelim. The first one that I'm really, really looking forward to. Because of Rafael Fiziev. A lot of people say Fiziev. Uh, I just found out the other day it's Fiziev. So, I'm going to say it right because I really love this guy. He has... First of all, he has 55% striking accuracy, which is the second best accuracy in lightweight history, only behind Justin Gaethje. Um, and he's, but he's only outlanding opponents by two-thirds of a significant strike per minute because um, opponents set a high pace on him, and, and he sets one on them. Uh, I mean, Mark Diakasi was his most voluminous fight, and Mark comes to, comes to go to war. Throws a lot of kicks and punches. Um, and, and Bobby Green does the same. He throws a lot of punches when he's on his game. Fiziev has a 59% defense rate, which is decent but not amazing. And I'll get into that in a bit. Meanwhile, Bobby Green attempts a lot of strikes. Like I said, 12.1 per minute. He faces 11.9. 46% accuracy. 65% defense. He outlines his opponents by 1.42 strikes per minute. Uh, So, yeah, it's really high up volume for him. He has 43% takedown offense, so he's good at takedowns, um, mostly by combining with them with strikes. You know, strike, strike, double change. Uh, He's not a great out-and-out wrestler, doesn't have great top control, but he can go to it. I mean, he is a a mixed martial artist. But on the Fiziev, he's 28 years of age, so he's six years younger than Bobby Green. He has the, seven, uh, the same reach as Bobby Green, 71 inches, although he's, I think, two inches shorter at 5'8". Uh, he's 3-1 in the UFC with two dominant decisions uh, and a knockout win against Moicano and one knockout loss versus Mago Ben Mustafayev, which there was a lot of hype on Fiziev coming in because he has great Muay Thai, but Mustafayev derailed it a bit. But Mustafayev is an awkward person to fight because... He just throws spinning shit so much. Yeah, and that and that TKO plan for right that that TKO was set up by a spinning back kick that was uh, pretty yeah. brutal. So it's yeah, not something it's, we're going to be looking for from Bobby Green. Definitely not. Um, but he does have some of the best Muay Thai in the UFC. He fights out of Tiger Muay Thai. He's actually a coach in Tiger Muay Thai, which I think Tiger Muay Thai is the best striking camp in the world, along with ONX Labs, which is Trevor Whitman's team. And he trains with the likes of Piotr Jan, Brad Riddell, Alex Volkanovsky, and, and, and actual Thai boxers, Nakamui's on the regular. Uh, and being a coach there is, is impressive, especially at only 28 years of age. So what he does is early on he'll establish feints on the outside, using footworks to feint entries as he moves laterally. He's constantly bobbing his head using both short and long rhythm. He moves it off the center line while feinting to, to numb his opponents to his offensive movements because those feints and that moving off the center line is the same thing he'll do when he actually throws strikes. He switches stances a lot, but he starts orthodox. He likes to pressure his opponents until they have no room to work with their back to the cage, and then he attacks, or if they get off the cage, like more skilled opponents will, he'll, he'll follow them, and not follow them like chasing them. He'll walk them down methodically. Sometimes he's reminiscent of Piotr Jan, the way he just walks his opponents down with the look of a stone-cold killer who loves nothing more than to go to war. Uh, the way Jan, I mean, if you look at the Jan-Faber fight, 
or the Yan Alja fight, he looks like a demon just walking you down. But uh, Fazeev's kicks are really well set up. They come from advantageous angles and are just brutal. Like, listen to the uh, kicks on the Diakasi fight. They were so loud. They made me cringe halfway around the world. And with those switch kicks, he sets them up and just smack to the midsection, those round kicks. They sound like like a light heavyweight kicking, not a, not a, not a small lightweight. But he, he changes the kicks levels constantly, starting by devastating opponents with leg and those body kicks for a while. Then eventually he'll go up, stop, up top for the head kick. It's just hard to predict where he's coming with his kicks. He has great power for his smaller 5'8 frame. And more importantly, he throws with such intensity and viciousness, which is usually something I talk about with women's MMA because it's often lacking there. But he has it in spades. Like more Again, I could compare him to Piotr Jan in this, just the, the intensity with which he strikes and the viciousness while still being measured. Uh, it's, it's a step above. Guys like Bobby Green who aren't that powerful, but more importantly, they don't throw everything they've got in every punch, which it's a different style. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that's Bobby Green style, uh, death by a thousand cuts, you know? Um, but yeah, the, especially switch kicks are, are, are set up really great because he'll start orthodox against uh, another orthodox fighter, step to southpaw, and bam, that left leg across the midsection is brutal, and it, it really hurts opponents' gas tanks, makes their guard drop, and opens up the head. He does great work with his lead hand, hand as far as punching, uh, starting combos with a power lead hook from whichever stance he's in, and then following it up with more power with straight power punches from his rear hand, either hooks, overhands, straight rights, uppercuts. He one-shotted Moicano in that way, um, started... Went head, body, head, I believe it was, and just dropped Moicano. It was a bit of an early stoppage because Moicano was still there. He wasn't all the way out, but it was a brutal knockdown. Um, that lead hook that he has is also important on the counter, as all lead hooks are, as is his straight punch. He's great at countering just with straight punches while while backing up. He he works the body uh, well with punches, not just kicks. Despite the, the, despite the fact that he sometimes loots loops jeez i can't speak despite the fact that he sometimes loops punches and throws with a lot of power his hand speed and lack of a windup is so good that nothing is telegraphed from him and i really like that about his game uh, as well as his fainting and disguising of his true attacks uh he disguises hip movement as well when he's loading up a kick uh and his hip fl with with feints beforehand and just by having a quick get off and his hip flexibility is so impressive, able to kick the head of opponents much taller than him with ease. His head kicks just get up there so, so fast. Everything is so fluid when Rafael gets going. He achieves a flow state with relative ease, where you can go from a body kick to a punching combination, to knees in the collar tie, to slipping a jab and hooking to the body, all in one fluid sequence. One of his few striking weaknesses is that he is usually so able to go forward and smother his opponents with pressure, and volume that he can be left open defensively, which we saw in, in that debut against uh, Magomed Mustafayev, who knocked him out with that with that spinning shit. Um, but it's also been seen in his other fights. I mean, his, he showed a great chin because guys like Diakasi, who's not a soft puncher, when he switched from trying to kick with Fiziev to boxing, he he started to land some punches through the guard while Fiziev was coming forward. 
because he's so intent on the attack that he doesn't even defend himself at times when he's just engrossed and is attacking. And, and some punches landed. And that's seen in his lower-than-expected 59% uh, striking defense that I mentioned earlier. All right. His main defensive tactic is really to just get out of the way, which often does work as control of as his control of range is superb, and his head movement is too. Um, but but his guard, for a Muay Thai guy, he doesn't use the high guard as much as you would expect. Uh, he famously looked like Neo in the Matrix against DKC in that fight of the night performance, avoiding high kicks by just bending his body straight backwards, just like the Matrix and then punishing him by returning leg kicks right away. Like, it was almost inhuman how he did that, and I, I kind of want to put a video compilation together of A, his loud, loud, powerful body kicks against the AKC, and B, that the, I think it was three different times, and I think one time against Alex White also, that he just bent his whole torso backwards at the hip. It's just insane. If I did that, I would fall over and break my legs. He's most effective on the counter against kicks, uh, countering low kicks with that with a hair trigger instantly, you know, with punches and countering head and body kicks with leg or body kicks. So you, he, you, you give him one, he'll return right away. When his opponents are purely boxing is when he has more trouble, uh, as seen in rounds two and three against Mark DKC, which he still won round two and had a 50-50 round three. It could have gone either way, really. I gave it to Fiziev. After a dominant round one, uh, those rounds were much closer because the AKC gave up trying to kick the Thai boxer and instead just tried to box him. He doesn't, but it's not that he's not a good boxer. It's just that he's a much better kicker. But when he can't retreat, sometimes he does raise a high elbow guard to block strikes. But mainly, he relies on head movement because his head movement is superb, like I said. But he also uses it offensively. For example... He slips punches to get his lead foot to the outside of his opponent's lead foot in an open stance matchup, and then he can kick the body brutally from an advantageous angle, or hit the side of the opponent's head with a straight punch from, again, an advantageous angle. A lot of his best work comes after making opponents miss, uh, and in that way, he can also do that, throw hooks, come up on the double collar tie. He's really dangerous in the clinch, in the collar tie with knees, as you'd expect from such a high-level uh Thai boxer. He has also, I've seen him stuff takedowns, get the front headlock and use that to land knees while the opponent's head is basically defenseless. Um, and speaking of takedowns, he has never been taken down in the UFC, stuffing 16 takedowns in his three wins. Um, but most of those did come from Alex White, 11 from Alex White, who's a lower level fighter. I believe two, no, three from the AKC. And then only one from Hinato Moikano, the, the jiu-jitsu black belt. But even in that Alex White fight, when Al Alex shot reactively and got deep in on his hips, Viziev's balance and reactions are such that he has, thus far at least, been able to stay standing every time. He has great Muay Thai sweeps uh, to get people on the ground, which is another reason clinching with him is dangerous. His top control isn't anything special, though, as he's, he's not a wrestler, and he comes from... Uh, Obviously, a Muay Thai background and a Muay Thai career of what was it something like sixty fights, I think. Um, yeah, it's something like that. He has spent some time on top, some time on top of White and DKC after getting sweeps, but he wasn't able to do much damage. 
And so he, he willingly stood up versus White, and yeah, Casey got back to his feet uh, when when he was taken down. Um, but So yeah, his grappling will mostly be a factor from this fight in the defensive standpoint. His takedown defense is great, but we have never seen him off his back. We have no idea what kind of jujitsu he has, what kind of what kind of bottom game he has. So if Green, who is a good but not amazing wrestler, is able to get him down, it, we'll see what happens. I think Fiziev is probably explosive enough just to stand up after a bit because Bobby Green is also not a, he's not a high level top game player, but he's 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 decent. He's decent. You have anything to say about Fiziev? Uh, Fiziev? No, I'm high on him like you are. I really am. So, uh, uh, you know, I, we'll get to our predictions later. I don't know if you're going to place any money on this because I, I, I don't have the ads right in front of me while I'm talking. But I, I think he's he's the obvious favorite in this one. Bobby Green is, Yeah. Um, in, in my estimation, he's a journeyman now. You know, he's... Yeah. And I think Fiziev is a rising star, so I don't think there's really too much to say about this other than I'm excited about Fiziev and where he goes from here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this this fight has all the makings of either a performance of the night knockout for Fiziev or a fight of the night like the Dia Casey fight. Right. Um, we'll see. Bobby Green has been a staple of the lightweight division for nearly a decade now. He's only lost once by KO, and that was to Dustin Poirier. And has won submission loss to Dan Lozon, Joe Lozon's brother, in 2009. Uh, I think that was pre-UFC. I forget. Yeah, pre-UFC. But he himself only has two UFC finishes, so he's not a finisher. He's a volume guy. He's 8-6-1 in the UFC, 4-2 in strike force before that. In his last fight, he lost a controversial decision to Tiago Moises, uh, where he did outstrike Tiago on the numbers, by almost double, but Thiago Moises did land the far more impactful punches. Uh, Bobby Green, though, he got lazy in round three. Despite having great cardio, he assumed he had banked the first two rounds, and the judges didn't see that way because of Thiago's greater power on his punches, and Thiago won round three to win 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards. A lot of people see it as a robbery. I don't necessarily, though I did score it for Bobby Green. I understand why the judges scored it the way they did. And most importantly for that fight is it showed Bobby Green's mentality issues a little bit. He's always been, not a head case, but he's always been a showboat. Um, he's been dependent on his brand of you know swagger that he has to get himself going with to, to really get into the flow of a fight. And just taking time off, he'll be really lazy in some fights, especially... Uh, five, six years ago, like when he drew with Lando Venata, lost Dustin Poirier and Edson Barboza, he was he he was in kind of a rut and he was just fighting lazily, throwing punches much weaker than he could and just just lazy punches all around. He's fixed that, but like I said, he still gets lazy because he took round three almost entirely off versus Tiago Moises. But he does like to talk out there to get. To feel himself to get that swagger going. Uh, if you watch his last fight of the night versus Lando Venata, he, he was talking to him the whole time and he had an amazing performance there. Like Fiziev, he can be a switch stance fighter, but he's more so orthodox. My main issue with Bobby, one of them at least, is his lack of intensity at times. 
Like I mentioned, sometimes he throws lazy strikes or just doesn't throw at all. But I do know he's better than that because when he's on his game and his hands are flying, he's one of the fastest-handed boxers in the division, in the lightweight division. Yeah. As far as technique, Bobby likes to pump the jab out there a lot, um, non-committally, and establish it, but then switch between leading with it and actually leading off with his uh, rear hand straight punches, mostly straight rights. <clears throat> Excuse me. But from either stance, when he does commit to his jab, it is quite sharp, which is my favorite attribute of his, along with his hand speed and cardio. I like his striking a lot, in fact, when he sticks to straight punching, but sometimes he'll get sloppy and start looping punches, like, uh, I think it was the Venata fight, early in that fight, he tried a, 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 a lead hook counter when Venata entered the pocket, and he just swung it like an overhand almost, it was, it was not pretty, <laughs> but with his straight punches, I mean, I mentioned it a lot with guys like Usman, Sean Strickland, and others, sometimes keeping it simple is the best, and just coming right down the middle it's the fastest straight punches beat looping punches and you don't have to be amazing to be good at straight punching you just have to be disciplined and not get wild so when he does stick to him and when he starts feeling himself he is a good striker a a genuinely good boxer and he can enter a flow state quickly you know punch punch shoulder roll step back showboat a little talk trash get back in there punch 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 because He's a volume monster. He's not a power striker, but when he's going, when he's on his game, he tunes opponents up with volume. Uh, he he keeps his hands down too much, which is one of my other issues with him because he's so confident in his head movement and his shoulder rolls. It's, yeah, and it's yeah. part of his showboater thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. He, he needs to get his trademark swagger going, and that's another way he does it. But when... It, and I get it, because when he doesn't have that, he performs poorly. But still, keeping his hands out can get him caught badly at times and, and dropped. In, even in fights he's winning, like the Venata fight, Venata dropped him briefly in that first round. The second Venata fight, that is. Both fights are great. Um, in both fights, he got dropped in. But he came back to drop Venata, I think, two more times and win that fight definitively. Anyway... He does have great head movement, like I said, a beautiful shoulder roll that's been adapted to MMA, but you can't slip every punch. And sometimes, even if your shoulder roll is successful, these smaller gloves, they can still deflect and and still catch you on the chin. And he leaves his head on the center line too much when he throws. Not defensively. Defensively, his head movement's great, but when he throws, his punch is coming straight down the middle. His head is also right in the middle. So as a result, he is quite counterable. Uh which Fiziev will capitalize on. He also uses low kicks with his hands all the way down, which, again, Fiziev will capitalize on with that hair trigger counter. Um, he pushes a high pace at times, and he can keep it going for three rounds if he chooses to. And in the fight last year against Clay Guida, he outpaced Guida to win the decision, which, even though Clay Guida has passed his expiration date, he is like a pace king. He's famous for pushing a really, really high pace. That's Clay Guida's whole game. And even though he's old, Bobby Green outpaced him. Yeah, Clay Clay Guida never quits moving. Exactly. (laughs) That man, I mean, he looks like he's on on the... on Yeah, Coke or meth or Adderall or something. Yeah, Yeah. but I I do love Clay. But yeah, uh, that just shows how good Bobby's pace is when he's in the game. But again, he often showboats, lazes around too much instead of driving that high pace. 
He has to really get into a fight like that last Venata fight in order for us to see him fight hard for 15 minutes. Otherwise, he'll usually take a round or two off. Or, I mean, parts of a round at least. He used to be worse with that. Like he would just slip punches and never fire back. But he does more today. But it's still often not enough like against Tiago Moises. If he doesn't pressure Fiziev and set a high pace, then Fiziev should be able to kick him to pieces from the outside. If he gets inside, it'll be a closer fight, but I do think Fiziev is still better there and will be able to slip punches and step outside and kick him, punch him. But that's where this fight goes from a performance of the night knockout for Fiziev to a fight of the night uh, bonus for both of them. Yeah, um, um, well, I, I just want to um, capitalize or make a note for people about that uh, the possibilities for fight of the night. It's huge, and uh, this may be something you want to look at in your books if you find a prop vet for goes the distance, because uh, I think it's uh, his last nine fights, he went the distance, and his last 12 of 13 have gone the distance. I mean, green is always in there till the end, so there, there's yeah. a good chance this being fight of the night, because it'll be a war. I still give the edge to Fizia, but this is definite fight of the night uh, candidate here, just on paper, if you look at it. Yeah, so that that is something that... It, is important that he goes that he's not a finisher like i said in the beginning he only has uh two ufc finishes and only two uh two uh finished losses in his whole career that that one ko was dustin poirier but also he hasn't faced as good of a finisher or just as powerful of a striker since he fought dustin poirier um so i do think between any fights between then and now, I think this fight has the best chance of him getting finished. Though I wouldn't say it's a high chance. I think there might be value on that plus 200 knockout line for Fiziev. Um, but that's not the play I'm going with. I'll get to that. Uh, as far as wrestling, Bobby's a decent wrestler. He's not amazing. He's not going to win fights with just takedowns and just top control. But he, he can shoot reactively, which I always like. He can get takedowns from the clinch with trips. Um, but most guys on his level, like the guys he fought, he's fought recently, Venata, uh, Alan Patrick, uh, Clay Guida, will be able to work their way to standing back up when he's on top in full or half guard. Fighters, I've seen them give, give their backs to him to get up, and although it's never a totally safe move, it's been done several times on Bobby with him attempting a rear naked choke and just not being able to capitalize at all. Um, because he he's not a good jujitsu guy. He's he's a decent wrestler, not good jujitsu. So yeah, I the line the line has been all over the place. I'll tell you this: it opened at minus one forty five, which God, I wish I had caught that for Fiziev, but uh, it shot up immediately to over plus over minus three hundred. I think minus three fifty was the peak. Now it's back down on some books to around three hundred on Bet Online, down to minus. 280 which is i mean favorable if you want to bet fizzy f straight or throw them in your parlay or whatever but that's not what i'm doing i'm going with our favored uh or i guess most prolific bet which is the point spread i think fizzy i think fizzy winning has like a 90 percent chance uh and I think a lot of that is knockout or dominant decision. I think Bobby Green will be in there, but I think he's just not as good, and he has a lot of flaws that Fiziev will be able to exploit. 
namely keeping his hands down too much and, and just not getting into the flow of the fight, uh, being a bit lazy at times when he's not pushing the pace like he should. Yeah. So I'm going with that minus 3.5 for Fiziev for three quarters of a unit. I, I think that's a good bet because I think uh, Bobby Green does have a chance of taking this the distance if he doesn't leave his hands down. If he comes in, you know, but it, like you said, uh, his swagger is part of his game, but <clears throat> I'm not sure how much uh, that swagger is going to psych out a guy that, you know, speaks a different language and shit, you know. Um, if he keeps his hands up, uh, because if he leaves him down, especially when he's throwing those leg kicks like you talked about, you know, if he leaves him down in that instance, he is going to get pieced up on the counter. So yeah. it'll depend on how he, how he comes out. But I, I like your bet. Oh, yeah. I like your bet. If But if he's got his hands up, Green stands a chance of uh, losing a decision. I don't see him winning at all, but I could see this being fight of the night. Yeah. I mean, anything can happen. Because cause of his pace. But, yeah, I, I very, very, very much think Fiziev wins. And we'll see. I mean, you can have a, a, a 30-27 performance and still have a fight of the night. Tell that. I mean, Mark Casey can attest to that in his fight against Fiziev. <clears throat> As can Calvin Cater. Max Holloway beat him from pillar to post for five rounds, and he still won a fight of the night bonus. Right. So, for just staying alive. Sometimes those are the best fight of the night. When it's like that, and the yeah. guy just won't won't go get put away, you know he won't go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so on to the main card. Um, we'll start with the first fight, obviously. Oh, actually, I wanted to say one thing about Fiziev versus Green. We talked about adding a new uh, segment where, or just little corner for uh, our either main the people's main event or the people's co-main event. This is my people's co-main event. Um, a lot, a lot of people are high on Fiziev, especially on MMA Twitter where I hang out a lot. Um, and Green is the perfect opponent for him to showcase that and have a fun fight with. Yeah. So this is my people's co-main event. Yeah, I think a lot of the people that uh, um, follow MMA pretty heavily, not, uh, I, I want to say like us because we do, but not like we're the end all and be all of, you know, MMA followers and handicappers or whatever, but people that are very into the sport, uh, most everyone I talk to are, everyone's very high on Fiziev and looking forward to this fight. Yeah, and Bobby Green's just always there. <laughs> having having fun fights or being lazy in fights for a decade. <laughs> All right, so the main card. Um, Song Yudong versus Casey Kenny. Uh, both these guys are both good wrestlers and strikers. It should be a decently fun fight, as with most bantamweight fights, because it's the best division, in my opinion. But they do match up well stylistically, both being solid wrestlers. Uh, Song fighting out a Team Alpha male, but Casey Kenny using his wrestling more, and also being a very good judoka, having great judo throws. Um, both have solid striking, but nothing super amazing on either side, except maybe Song Yedong's power, which is very good for bantamweight. Shown by his 1.2% knockdown rate. Um, but Yudong has not lived up to his hype. His resume is carried right now by what I believe was a robbery over Cheetah Vera. Uh, Cheeto should have won that fight. And he was also lucked out with the judges to get a draw versus Cody Stamen. He lost two rounds, but he got a knockdown. 
And so it was a, and the judge, judges saw that as enough to give a 10-8 round. I disagreed. It should have been 29-28 stamen. But he was exposed badly uh, earlier this year when he fought Kyler Phillips, who we just saw in action. Uh, Kyler Phillips, that was just like, you know, one of those performances of a lifetime, although it wasn't a totally dominant decision because Kyler Phillips gassed in round three. He dominated him for the first two rounds. And really all uh, Song Yudong was able to show off was his chin. Kyler Phillips hit him with, like, solid, solid head kicks. And he just took them, took some big punches. Uh, and he just looked quite bad. He couldn't get out of the way. He couldn't stop Kyler Phillips from doing his thing. His footwork was quite limited. It, it was just not a good performance, other than the fact that he didn't get knocked out. Casey Kenny has signature wins over Nathaniel Wood, Alatang Hei Lee, and an older Ray Borg, all by decision. He was the LFA bantamweight champion, where he beat Brandon Royval, who is now a top five flyweight in the UFC. Um, he's getting his good movement, that that's his main thing, and is a good switch hitter, which is why they booked him against Cruz, because it'd be two guys moving around back and forth, but he couldn't use the game plan that uh, Henry Cejudo implemented and kind of showed the blueprints to beating Cruz. Casey Kenny couldn't do that. He wasn't kicking the trailing leg. He wasn't making Dom come to him. Um, and he lost the decision, which that decision kind of lowered his stock and Dominic's stock in a way because they both didn't look great. Um, he lost to old Dominic Cruz. Dom's, what, 38 now? 37? Yeah. Uh, and and But Dominic showed his age by not winning by a massive margin and dropping a round in the process. So it was kind of a, a negative for both guys that night. Although it was good to see Dom back in the win column after uh, losing the title shot to uh, Cejudo and, and you know a four-year layoff before that due to injury, as, as usual. But this fight is dead even on the lines, minus 110, minus 110. And I think that's the way it should be. I, I really cannot pick a winner. I can't even pick a lean in this fight. Uh, it's, it's just a good fight. I think I would concur with all that. I'm interested to see it. I think uh, um, it's a ve- yeah. it's a very important fight for both of them. Yeah, both of them. If they want to be top fifteen guys, they have to win. This is like a turning point fight. The loser it has a very good chance of becoming a gatekeeper. The winner could potentially you know fight ranked next potentially. I think they would give more of a chance to Song Yudong because they like to get the Chinese market in there. Uh, and he has power, which they love. And he was hyped at one point. So they would probably want him to regain his ranked spot. But there's a lot of killers at Bantamweight. But this is a must-win for both guys, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't have anything else to add except it'll be it'll be a good fight because they're fairly evenly matched. And as we just said, that it, it it's kind of a must-win fight for both of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's not like an amazing fight like Fiziev and the, the Aldo Munoz fights will be, I think, but it's a, you know just a solid bantamweight fight. Excuse me. All right, next up, which got this got added to the main card after Amanda Nunez got COVID and dropped off the card. Her fight against Pena off the card. Tisha Torres versus Angela Hill two. The rematch. Tisha beat her in, in the first fight. Um, eons ago really was that 2014 yeah i think so it was uh tisha torres yeah yeah, 2014 uh, no 2015 june 2015 yeah so at that at that time 
Uh, oh, you're, well, you're looking, but if if you weren't, I would have you guess what Angela Hill's record was at the time. Because <laughs> she was only 2-0. and This was her third pro fight. And her fourth was to Rose Nama Yunus. Right. Um, but yeah, Tisha Torres, Tisha Torres won that fight. Uh, I mean, a, a, a clear and decisive win. All right, so on the stats, Tisha Torres, 44% accuracy, 71% defense. Angela Hill, 45% accuracy, 67% defense. But the big difference is in, is in the pace um, that they're able to set because uh, Angela Hill is a really high-paced striker, but her opponents do also come back at her with 17.3 significant strikes attempted per minute. Uh, but... She also offensively has the second most strikes landed through anyone's first 17 UFC fights only after Joanna. I mean, she has more strikes landed through 17 fights than Max Holloway did through his first 17 fights. Really impressive. But her opponents aren't respecting her in the striking realms because they're hitting her just as much as she's hitting them. She only outlands opponents by, uh, what is that, 1 20th of a strike per minute. 0. 0.05 significant strikes per minute. Uh, basically, both her and her opponents land 5.8 significant strikes per minute. Uh, Tisha Torres, on the other hand, uh, outlands her opponents by 2.1 significant strikes per minute. Um, neither of them are super great wrestlers. Uh, Tisha Torres tries more than Angela Hill, who Angela Hill really just wants to keep it standing. But Tisha Torres is well-versed in the clinch. She has a 21% control rate through her fights, mostly because of good clinch control. Um, in the striking, she's more in and out and chaotic with her movement while Hill is more flat footed. I, I think that Tisha Torres is a slightly better striker and a slightly better grappler, if not wrestler, because, uh, Tisha Torres has only has a 15% takedown accuracy while Angela Hill has a 70% takedown defense, but Angela Hill has been controlled before, uh, in the clinch, giving up a 17% opponent control rate. And Tisha Torres, like I said, is good in the clinch. She can hold opponents there and, and just do damage that looks good on the ju on the judges' scorecards. Um, not much more else to say. I thought about playing this, but the odds moved a bit out of the range. They were, I think, minus 120, and now they're like in the minus 140, 150 range. Uh, if we got that earlier, I probably would have put like half a unit on it. Um, but at this point, I'm, I'm not playing it unless the odds drop back down. Yeah, um... I think an interesting thing to watch is uh, that this one goes the distance. Uh, Torres has never been knocked out. Um, Angela only has five KOs. Between the two, you know, uh, between the two of them, they've got uh, thirty fights that went to decision. You know, so there's a good chance this goes all the way to the third round. Yeah, um, and the odds reflect that. I think minus four hundred is the goes the decision prop because it's it's straw weight and they're not finishers, like you said. But yeah, that's that for that fight. Here we get to the big big fights, the the you know fights that have big implications for their divisions. Starting with Michael Chiesa versus Vincente, the Silent Assassin, Luke, one of my favorite fighters, just because of his own spectacular brand of violence I, I love to watch luke fight he's had great fights in his career uh, we talked about the wonder boy thompson fight a few weeks ago two fights against nico price that were great randy brown uh his last fight against woodley 
was even a great fight as long as it lasted. A war against Mike Perry in his only UFC decision win. And just finish after finish after finish on his resume. Meanwhile, Michael Chiesa is just a dominant wrestler and grappler. He stays on top of guys and doesn't let go. Uh, Luke has the second most finishes in welterweight history. Um, 7.3 significant strikes per minute. Uh, almost a 2% knockdown rate. Um, he doesn't face many takedowns, but he gives he has given up a 17.5% opponent control rate, mainly because of two fights against uh, Leon Edwards and Mike Graves that he lost by decision because they out-wrestled him. And he has a 60% takedown defense, which is a bit lacking, and I'll dive deeper into that later uh, because that's what Kiesa is going to go for. Kiesa doesn't strike much. Uh, I mean, he only lands like 1.8 significant strikes per minute and gets outlanded by 1.5, but that's on the feet, that is. That's because he's not looking to strike on the feet. Luque, like I said, high-volume striking offense, but his defense is a bit lacking. He absorbs a lot of pun uh, punches, 52% uh, strike accuracy. His opponents have 52% uh, strike accuracy as well. He's an amazing finisher, as we know. No, sorry. His opponents have a 48% strike accuracy. His defense is 52%. My bad. He's an amazing finisher, as we know. Like I said, only one UFC decision win. Three UFC losses, all by decision. He wants to keep it striking. And I could talk about his striking, his violence, his, his technique all day. But sadly, they're not as relevant here. There's just simply no chance that Michael Chiesa on the feet can keep up with Vincente Luque. But I don't think that he will have to. But if he does, he's 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 fucked. <laughs> um, Luque, over his career in the UFC, gets taken down 1.42 times per fight. Has a takedown defense, like I said, of 66%. So he's taking down one every three attempts. And he's given up a 17% control rate. That doesn't seem awful other than the takedown defense on the surface. But when you look deeper, it gets kind of bad. Uh, per numbers... MMA by the numbers at numbers MMA on Twitter. Another shout out for him, as always. When Vincente Luque faces two or more takedowns, he gives up 2.7 takedowns per 15 minutes with a takedown with his takedown defense dropping to 60%, and he gets controlled for 30% of those fights. Um, only three of his opponents have attempted three plus takedowns. That would be the aforementioned Leon Edwards and Michael Graves. Um, but those opponents who attempted, oh wait, no, and Shoot, and uh, Nico Price, I believe, in their latest fight, which he won that fight, but he lost the other two. And in those fights, he allowed a 36% control rate, and his takedown defense was about the same. Uh, he's he's a brown belt in BJJ, has two darts chokes and an anaconda in the UFC, and that's kind of his, his best submission is, is those, those front chokes. So that front headlock is something Kiesa has to watch out for if... For example, Luque sprawls when Chiesa shoots for the hips, Greco-Roman style. So Luque by sub at like plus 1,200, I think I saw that, is something to look at. But Chiesa will probably be smart enough to avoid traditional takedowns because of that. And I do believe he will have a lot of success in the fight, taking him down through through the clinch. Um, and through the clinch, judo, judo throws, sweeps, uh, reactive takedowns. Because Luque's main weakness has historically been wrestling, like I said. In his most recent fight for Chiesa, a main event versus 
you know, good wrestler and good all-around fighter, Neil Magny. Chiesa landed four out of six takedowns in a, over five rounds and controlled him for 60% of that fight, which is 15 minutes or three full rounds. So, I mean, that that's a lot, a lot of control against a very good, uh, just overall MMA fighter and wrestler, Neil Magny. It, it was a snooze fest for some, but it showcased Chiesa's grappling in a, in a big way. Because his three previous fights at welterweight were RDA, who is great, love him, weak to wrestlers. Carlos Condit, great, love him, older and weak to wrestlers. And the ghost of Diego Sanchez, who's just just old as shit. (laughs) (laughs) He he wrestled the hell out of those three guys. Um, But Kiesa, like I said, low volume and accuracy on the feet. But it's not the point. He wants to get the fight to the ground, very obviously. He shoots almost immediately in fights. Um... Shout out to Uncle Wheezy on YouTube and Twitter for this stat. Within the first minute and six of his last seven fights, I believe was the stat, he shot within uh, a minute. Only the time he shot after a minute was one minute and 20 seconds against RDA. In five of those fights, shot within 30 seconds. Some of them inside 15 seconds. He lands 3.6 takedowns per 15 minutes, which is good in itself. But he also lands 52% of his takedowns, which is a really high clip, and has just always been successful at taking fights to the ground because not only is he landing those 3.6 takedowns, he's spending 48% of his fights on the ground. So most of the time, those three takedowns, one at the beginning of each round, and he controls you for for most of the round. Um, He's only lost by finish ever, which is interesting here. If you're on the Luque side, that means you likely want to play Luque by finish, which is a plus 250 range, I believe. He's been subbed three times. One of those was a Darce choke by uh, Jorge Masvidal, no less. Um, one rear naked choke and one triangle arm bar. Those from Kevin Lee and Anthony Pettis. Um, the other time by Dr. Stoppage due to a cut versus Joe Lozon. So, never gone to decision in a loss, but several times in victory. But he's been out-controlled four times in the UFC, and he went 1-3 in those fights, beating Colton Smith and losing to Kevin Lee, Joe Lozon, and Jorge Masvidal. But he, on the flip side, he's 10-1 when he out-controls his opponents, with his only loss coming to Anthony Pettis, who has a tendency to pull off big upsets, like the Wonderboy knockout, this... this uh, Submission when he was down. One special accomplishment I want to mention from Kiesa is that he subbed Benil Daryush at lightweight, which we've talked about Benil, and he's ranked three in the world right now. He's a world-class jiu-jitsu guy who's won gold at the Mundials multiple times and is a great wrestler to boot. Beating him is great, but finishing him by rear naked choke is probably the crowning achievement in Michael Kiesa's career. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> Um, and I just want to mention that he fought at lightweight most of his career and he was huge. He's a huge lightweight, but the weight cut was bad and he had a tendency to gas out. But at welterweight, he has looked so much better. I mean, he went 25 minutes with Magni and and was dominant the whole time, really. Uh, and, and never looked like he gassing out. He's still a big welterweight. Like he's six foot one and, and big, thick guy. Uh, but he's he he just looks so much better at welterweight, and he's bigger than a lot of these welterweights. Um, I don't know about bigger than Luke, maybe a little bit, 
but Luka is a decent sized guy himself. But I just I just wanted to say I don't know how he was making lightweight the way he looks now at welterweight, and it's just this is definitely the division for him. So all that together, it, it paints a pretty clear picture. Luka is the much better striker, but that's not in question. Luka is weak to wrestling, even though he hasn't faced that many wrestlers. The stats and and the the tape paint a clear picture of that. I mean, he lost to Leon Edwards, who's a solid, very solid wrestler. Uh, Kiss is probably on the same level or even higher because he goes to it more. But he also lost to Michael Graves, who is not on the level that uh, these other guys are. To be fair, that was on the finale of their Ultimate Fighter season, Black Zillions versus ATT. But it's still lost to a fighter that should really be below his caliber. So, uh... I hate to do this because I love I love Vincente Luque. I think I already said that three or four times, but my bet is on Michael Chiesa here. I just don't really like it because it, this is uh, this is an even Steven coin flip fight, and uh, I'm I'm not a huge Chiesa fan, but I respect everything I've seen him do in the ring. You know, I've been I've, I've been following him since he was on the Ultimate Fighter that season, and watched him in. Uh, I don't hate your bet because I do. Once he gets a guy down, he's great at smothering. It's hard to get back up once he gets you on the ground, you know. So, I, I this could really be a thing where uh, Luke doesn't even get chances to throw punches. You know what I mean? Kiese can uh, uh, get him into his world and uh, just drown him. You know, wrestle fuck the shit out of him. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I was going to say, so uh, I'm I'm kind of leaning with you on that. Uh, you can tell the people what the odds are, but just because of those things, even though I still like Luke a lot, I think this is a bad stylistic matchup for him. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's the problem. I mean, Luke has looked great, but he's fought styles that have been tailored to him for the most part, other than Leon Edwards, maybe Bilal Muhammad, but Bilal was a much lower-level wrestler, and he got knocked out within a minute, so he couldn't do anything. But, I mean, Nico Price, Chad LaPree, Jalen Turner, Brian Barbarena, Derek Krantz, Mike Perry, Nico Price again, Randy Brown, and Tyron Woodley may, maybe would have been a bad-style matchup if it was primed he would and if it went longer, but he got finished relatively quickly and only shot one desperation takedown, which led to the Darce. <coughs> So he's 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 been in fights that have been tailored to his style, and uh, other than Wonderboy and Leon Edwards, this will be the best opponent he's fought. Michael Chiesa and Wonderboy and Leon Edwards both beat him, unfortunately. So like I said, I hate it, but I have to go with Chiesa. I have to move my bias and just see that Chiesa has the stylistic advantage, and that the 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 odds are good. I mean, I wish I had gotten there earlier because Chiesa was at like plus one thirty. But it, he still, you can still get him at even money. Um, I mean, even like minus one ten, or on some books he's still plus money at plus one hundred. Uh, the best I see on is plus one hundred two, but I don't have cloud bet, so I'm going with plus one hundred on pinnacles. Uh, unless you see anything better. No, I don't so. see anything better. But um, for people that have different books than you, uh, bet three sixty five has him at a hundred. Bet Rivers has him at a hundred. Uh, William Hart has him at 100, so you can find him out there for 100 bucks. Yeah. And if you got him at 102, that's the best I see. Yeah, bet BAS, Bet Any Sports also. Um, SIA, Unibet, 
yeah, those are the plus 100 ones. But yeah, so my bet, 1.2 units. It's it's just the style matchup is, is really good. So had to go a bit above one unit. 1.2 units at plus 100 on Pinnacle on the Kiesa money line. Yeah, we could have got Kiesa. He was... He was uh he opened at plus one twenty five, dude. Yeah, I mean it, yeah. Plus one thirty some places, one twenty five others. One yeah, on bet online he was one fifty five for a little bit of time, but that was that was uh weeks ago. Alright, on to the real co main event, which is my people's main event. This is the best fight on the card for me. Um, between two guys who are gonna go at it with striking. Um, the legend, GOAT. Jose Aldo versus Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz. And keep this in mind while I talk about this, the lines are even. Minus 110, minus 110. You know, both guys. Right. It's a pick em. Um, Start off with stats. Since the Max Holloway fights for Aldo, which it was after his prime already, but he got beat pretty bad in those fights because he, he gassed after starting way too hard. Um, but since those fights, he has a 45% striking accuracy and 55% defense. If we look at his, just his bantamweight fights, his last three fights, 48% accuracy, 53% defense. Um, yeah. Pedro Munoz, in his career, 43% accuracy, 59% defense. He gets slightly outpaced by opponents um, by uh, 0.7 significant strikes per minute. He gets off uh, 5.6 significant strikes per minute, and his opponents get 6.3 off. Um, these guys, Aldo has controlled opponents for 11% of his fights. Munoz by uh, has for 6.3% of his fights. So neither guy, I mean, they, they both have jujitsu, and Aldo has some wrestling, but he mainly used it defensively. Or, or when he would get tired and just want to lay on somebody for a bit. <clears throat> Aldo was known for taking rounds off when he was champ. <clears throat> But that accuracy number for Munoz and for uh, Aldo somewhat is deceptive. Leg, leg kicks are much, and shout out to Numbers MMA for this. I asked him about this and he delivered in a big way. This really helped my capping. 27.5% um, of Pedro Munoz's strikes are leg kicks. Without leg kicks, uh, Munoz's accuracy dropped to 34.1%. Um, I'll get into a bit later why I think this is relevant. But let it, I'll just say it can't be looked at as entirely accurate for how Munoz would do without leg kicks for various reasons, like he would fight differently. Um, but it has to be considered in a fight where I believe he will have a hard time landing leg kicks. And as far as Aldo, he used to be a leg kicking machine, much less since the Holloway fight. 12.6 of his uh, strikes are leg kicks, and there his accuracy drops to 41.7%. So pretty similar, um, a 2% uh, or a 3.5%. 3% difference for Aldo and uh, uh, a 9% difference for Pedro Munoz. So, Pedro Munoz, he's added calf kicks to his arsenal. I mean, he was always a low kicker. When he started in the UFC, he was only a low kicker. He had a guillotine and, and a low kick, um, but he's developed a lot since he moved to ATT. Shoot, I just did something wrong. Put a marker. I did something wrong with the... Okay. There. All right, go with my word document. Go. Um, <laughs> okay, 
Pedro Munoz has added calf kicks to his arsenal. He always had a low kick, but he's more recently, since moving to ATT, added calf kicks, which is kind of a signature strike for them nowadays, and he's been very effective with them. When he came into the UFC, he only had the low kick and his guillotine, really, his jiu-jitsu, mainly guillotine finishes, but that calf kick and his improved striking make him a very dangerous fighter in this division. He often throws the calf kicks naked, though, because most opponents don't know how to check them effectively. He used to seem scared to trade hands and would just low kick, but since moving to ATT, he's just improved in so many ways. He's become quite a good striker, and like I said, turned that low kick into the low low kick we see today. And he was doing it a bit before it entered the meta in the last two years. He, was, he started doing this three, four years ago. He still covers up too much, and his footwork isn't the best with his short shuffling steps and tendency to chase opponents chase opponents when they fight on the back foot, but he is a force to be reckoned with in this division. Uh, he put out Cody Garbrandt with a brilliant game plan and an amazing overhand right uh, in, in a great fight where he made Cody come to him like Cody made Dom Cruz come to him, and then Cody got hurt a bit and went swinging and banging, and Munoz obliged him, eating his shots, delivering back shots, and, and Cody crumpled first. Uh, it, was, it was a good, great performance, even though for the, a lot of it, uh, to the naked eye, it looks just like two guys randomly swinging right hands. And, and in, in a way, it was, but there's more to it than that. Um, and in his last fight, he destroyed uh, Jimmy Rivera, avenging a loss from earlier in his career. Destroyed Jimmy Rivera with calf kicks uh, and, and beating him by decision. Uh, only, his only recent losses being a hotly contested five-round decision loss to Frankie Edgar in a main event, um, which I have to say, originally I scored that for Munoz, but I re when re-watching it to tape for this fight, I scored it for Frankie Edgar. A lot of people say it's a robbery. I think it's close enough that it's not a robbery, but could have gone either way. Um, and, and recently also a loss to Aljo, where Aljamain Sterling really looked like a guy playing UFC 4 just pressing all the buttons at once <laughs> to throw every attack, you know, throw a spinning back kick, uh, just, and then just, just a random variety of punches while pressuring. I mean, but that is kind of his game plan a lot of the time. He tried to do that to Piotr Jan, who has really been the only one able to, to stop it recently. Anyway, against Frankie Edgar, he got countered a lot off of low kicks, stopping um, his low kicks in their tracks for a period of time. By Frankie just getting kicked, punching him in the face. Give one, take one. Aldo can also defend leg kicks this way with the hair trigger counter we talked about from Fiziev, as well as getting the leg out of the way or checking. Pedro Munoz against Jimmy Rivera landed 40 out of 52 leg kicks. Um, but to me, there is no way he will do that to Jose Aldo. He may be able to outmaneuver Aldo and make them a factor in this fight, but with Jose's Muay Thai skills and specifically his proven ability to check and or avoid calf kicks, there's just no way he will land even close to 40 calf kicks. Uh, I'll get into the reason more why later when I talk about Aldo's skill set. In the Frankie Edgar fight, though, Frankie actually outboxed him. If we were talking about purely boxing, um, Munoz made up for that boxing with uh, leg kicks and power shots. Um, but he... Edgar consistently hit uh, Munoz with clean shots right through Munoz's guard, and that's worrying for the Aldo fight, as is the fact that Pedro's body was consistently open 
to be punched, which as Aldo has phased out the leg kick, he has started to hit the body even more than he used to. And especially in that last fight against Chido Vera and against Piotr Jan too, he, he was vicious digging to that body. Like his body shots are some of the most brutal you'll see, um, in the pure boxing sense in MMA. Um, but Pedro Munoz also landed big shots at times, but against Frankie Edgar, he was more one and done than anything. While and with big punches and leg kicks, while Frankie Edgar struggled to get their combos and counters, though he often head hunted, um, leading to Pedro covering up his head. But Edgar would still sting him, sting him, you know, um, a three-two-four combo something like that and then duck under the return and get out of the way and then Munoz would be back to pressuring him against the fence um and that got Pedro frustrated he he would chase him around the octagon instead of cutting the cage and he would do Frankie what Frankie wanted for large part chasing him and getting countered though uh he did do a good job of heading Frankie off when Frankie circled to the power side um you know Frankie circles to the left you throw a kick to that side but it show. I mean, this is an old Frankie Edgar we're talking about. A Frankie Edgar who fought at lightweight and featherweight most of his career in his first bantamweight fight. And although Frankie was always fast, he doesn't have that sp- same speed advantage at bantamweight where everyone is fast. But Pedro Munoz isn't as fast. I mean, he Frankie's hand speed is faster than Munoz. Munoz is a huge hitter, like a really big hitter, but he doesn't have that same hand speed. Just something to think about. He also doesn't move his head enough, especially when coming forward and throwing strikes. He's not great at parrying, as I alluded to earlier. His defense is just mostly covering up entirely um, or relying on his chin. He relies on his chin too much, and he has a great chin, but it's not a good look for the judges. I mean, he's never been finished, submission or knockout, but it's not a good look for the judges when you get hit hard, stagger backwards, and then come back forward like a zombie, which... Happened a lot against Frankie Edgar. He'd be staggered, but never go down and never even look that hurt. Just stumble a little bit from some big blows, big combos. Um, Munoz is better on the offensive or just trading punches in the middle, swinging and banging. He's not a great counter striker. If Pedro fought behind his jab, he would be much better. He has a solid, sharp, powerful jab, but he rarely uses it and never builds off it. It's just one and done, like so much of his offense. He's used it more in his last two fights, but he's still, in those fights uh, against Frankie and Jimmy Rivera, he, he didn't build off of it. Against Rivera, like I said, he went to the calf kick harder and harder, destroying his leg with it, left Jimmy Rivera one-legged after only three minutes of fighting, and it was only because Jimmy is insanely tough that he made it to the end of that fight. I mean, it was some, like... Aldo versus Faber vibes, uh, Gaethje versus Poirier type stuff where your leg is just black, all black for days, except for this was yeah. on the calf, not the whole Another leg. one was uh, uh, Cerrone versus Alvarez. He beat his leg up too. Yeah. But yeah, the difference though is these calf kicks, it looks like less, but it, because it, it doesn't bruise up the same, but it's more localized so it disables the leg much quicker and like aldo against faber it took him a round or two to really damage the leg and have it start accumulating pedro it took three minutes for him to pretty much disable jimmy rivera's leg and pedro looked his best ever in that fight um but a lot of success with his hands came off of success with calf kicks because you would see before the calf kicks took over jimmy tagged him a lot in winning pure boxing exchanges 
Um, and, and there's an argument for Jimmy winning the first round, I believe. But then once he was on one leg, Pedro took over. Uh, so Pedro kind of relied on disabling that leg to to be dominant in this fight against a really good boxer, which Jose Aldo, also a really good boxer. If he can't do that to Aldo, I believe Aldo will outbox him. Um, not going to go too much into the grappling because both of these guys have great jiu-jitsu, but they don't use it much. But um, the main thing with... Pedro to watch for is his guillotines. He turns front headlocks into guillotines a lot. They often present themselves after sprawling to defend takedowns. Um, he hasn't got uh, Darce or an Anaconda in the UFC yet, but he also has those on his earlier fight record. Um, and in general, he just has a lot of grappling matches, uh, something like 800 grappling matches, I believe they said in one of the commentaries for his fights. Um... So if Aldo goes to take him down, if somehow, you know, Aldo's hurt and shoots a desperation takedown, there's a chance of a submission here, but I really, I, I don't see it. So, on to Jose Aldo, the featherweight goat, fighting at bantamweight. Um, Aldo's lead handwork is amazing, uh, like some of the masters of MMA right now, Dustin Poirier, Alexander Volkanovsky. Um, he pumps it his lead hand non-committally as a jab to get reads on his opponent and use it as a smoke screen for the straight right to the body. Level changes, hits the straight right to the body, and then he'll progress to fainting that same straight right and then hitting the body with his left hook. Left hook to the body is one of his favorite punches, especially these days, and it, it's a dagger. I mean, he winds up a bit too much on it, like the punch is too wide instead of, you know, being sharp, but MMA strikers don't hit the body that much, and the way he does it is... It's quite painful, clearly. Um, Piotr Jan showed no emotion for it, but he got tuned up to the body a lot before he took over that fight with his cardio. And Aldo really put the hurt on Cheeto Vera's body in his last fight. Uh, I mean, the lead hook is also amazing to the head. I mean, on attack or the counter, it continuously finds the head of his opponents, setting up other punches. As I've already alluded to, he's one of the best boxers in MMA. Um... In general, I mean, he considered a career in boxing after losing his featherweight title, um, but then decided to have the change of moving down to bantamweight, and one of the best when it comes to punching the body. His guard is hard to penetrate. Um, he has such fast reflexes, and he can parry punches, unlike Pedro Munoz. Uh, and even harder is to kick his legs effectively, because his Muay Thai is so good. One of the best videos out there that you'll find on YouTube about how to check leg kicks or avoid leg kicks is a demonstration by Jose Aldo himself. I mean, it's not a formal demonstration like like BJJ Fanatics or the stuff Machida does, but it, it's him in the gym showing how to check or avoid leg kicks. He shows you can check it. You just have to turn your leg all the way out, or you can basically turn your knee into, think of a door hinge, and just hinge your leg straight up. You have to have great reflexes to do it. And the problem with that is that the calf kick will still catch you a bit if you don't get it up in, fa in time because it's so low. Um, but if you get your calf up enough, your opponent, their their uh, kick will just kind of glance off the front of your shin. So you just bring bring the leg straight up and back pretty much. And your weight that way, if it does connect, fully isn't on your front leg, which is when calf kicks do the most damage. And that's when you see guys stumble and fall down especially early in fights, which Frankie Edgar and Jimmy Rivera both did this. They kind of stumbled and fell because uh, Munoz kicked the leg that they had all their weight on. 
Aldo will know, and in general, he fights with his weight more shifted towards his back foot anyway, but he'll know to not, to, to watch out for that leg kick and how to counter it. Of course, this requires extraordinary reflexes, which Aldo still maintains at 34 years old, which, coincidence, uh, Pedro is 34 years old too, and you wouldn't be able to tell if you just thought about it, but Pedro has much less fight mileage on him, while Jose Aldo has 15 years of wear and tear on him. I mean, 12 years ago, he was a WBC champion at 22 years old, um, and moving down a weight class is Jose Aldo. Uh, but winning a round or two off of Piotr Jan shows he isn't washed just yet, as does his performance against the always dangerous Cheeto Vera last time out. He says that his weight cut for bantamweight is easier than his old one for featherweight, and while well, you take stuff that fighters say with like that with a grain of salt, I believe him honestly because his cardio has looked better than it did for a while there. He's able to fight three full rounds at, at a decent pace, sometimes slows down a bit towards the end of that third round, but... There were times at featherweight, like against Max, where he was gassing out in that the beginning or middle of that third round. Um, but he still does gas over five rounds, so good for him. This isn't five rounds like the Yan fight. And, and but if Pedro pushes a high-paced fight, he might be able to gas uh, Aldo out, and he should try to by by utilizing leg kicks. But I wouldn't count on it. Let's say. Um, but I believe him because of that and the technological advancements and smarter weight cuts these days. Brazilians have always been known for traditional weight cuts, which are more brutal, taxing on the body. Um, that's just a stereotype that seems to have held true, especially back in the day. But he he talked on Embedded about how the weight cut is easier now, how he does it better. He, I mean, it was brief, but he clearly plans it out much better, comes into much slimmer and cuts less water weight. So it's just less brutal of a cut. Um, but he is still a very big bantamweight up there with like Aljamain Sterling and Corey Sandhagen as the biggest guys in this division. So what this comes down to is Aldo's boxing versus Pedro's boxing and if Aldo can stop Pedro's low kicks. I think Aldo's boxing, pure boxing, is, well, obviously, not obviously, but it's better than Frankie Edgar's boxing, who I believe slightly outboxed Munoz. And the calf kicks were a big effect in that fight still, even though less than the Jimmy Rivera fight. Um, I think Aldo will have a lot of room to hit the body. I think Munoz will have a really tough time establishing that low leg kick, like I've said. So in this fight, I'm going with Jose Aldo at, at minus 110 uh, is what the odds are. Yeah, I... Uh... I, I like that bet. I think I favor Aldo in this fight. Um, he's He's been one of my favorite fighters over the years. Uh, back when MMA wasn't the big sport it is now, the WEC fights were on free TV. I believe it was the TNT network that they had a contract with. <laughs> and you used to be able to watch the fights all the time. They were on at 11 o'clock. See them all the time. Um, you mentioned they're both 34. That's true. But you also mentioned that... Uh, Jose has got way more fight miles on him for those 34 years, like 12 more fights. And it's worth mentioning, you know, the guys he, the guys he fought during that time, you know? Yeah. Killers. Yeah. Just uh, for, for that time, 
in that division, it was a who's who, you know, Cub Swanson, Mike Brown, Uriah Faber, Manny Gamburian, Mark Hominick, Kenny Florian, Chad Mendez, Frankie, Alex hey, Frankie Edward, Chan Sung Young, Ricardo Lamos, Mendez, you know what I mean? McGregor. Uh, yeah. He, he's fought everybody. And then, yeah, and, and his only losses were to legends. Conor McGregor, I mean... He could have been more of a legend if he stuck with it, obviously, but he's still one of the most talented featherweights ever. Max Holloway, arguably the most talented at featherweight ever, twice. Um, came back and beat Jeremy Stevens and Moicano before losing to Volkanovski in a fight where he really just did nothing. He just didn't fight, and Volkanovski decisioned him. Marlon Marais lost in a very close split decision, but that was Marlon coming off of his title fight with Cejudo, and he was still a very good fighter. I scored it. Um... 29-28 for, for for Jose, but I can I guess see how people scored it from Rice, so I don't totally call it a robbery. And then is lost to Piotr Jan last year, which is right. So Piotr Jan is the best fighter in the world right now, pound for pound in my. So opinion. you can look at his last. What is it? His last nine fights or ten fights, and see that he has six losses. But when you look at who those six losses are to, you know, it it makes yeah. a little more sense. I do like him at this uh, smaller weight class, like you said. I think he's 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 big for this weight class, but he doesn't look unhealthy at all. You know, like he's like he's trying real hard to get down there. I believe he will be able to defend the leg kick because that was his primary weapon for so many years. You know, if um, the guys he trained with, that's what they trained. If you know how to throw it, then you know how to protect against it too, because they were doing it in the gym yeah. every day. And his boxing is better, I believe. Um, about those those losses, I mean, so I I love both of these guys. They, they both put on fun fights consistently. I'm probably more of a fan of Aldo just because longevity and you know he's been around more. But Munoz has really become one of the most underappreciated, exciting fighters in the sport in my favorite division. So I like both of them a lot. But Munoz is not to the level of Jan, Marais, Solkanovsky, Holloway, or McGregor, the only guys that uh, Aldo has lost to since 2005. Um, that leg kick, one more thing I forgot to mention, which it's bantamweight, so it's less likely to happen, but Munoz punts that leg kick. He slams it in there, which we've seen it recently with Connor, although it was a bit different. It didn't break right away, but he was punting that kick into uh, Dustin's knees, bony knees. Um and, of course, Chris Weidman slammed into your eyes leg, broke his leg. Uh, I don't think that'll happen. Like, lower weight classes, it's less likely because there's less power generated. But Aldo knows how to check a calf kick. It's harder. Some people will tell you it's impossible to check a calf kick, but it's no. not. You just have to turn it all the way outwards. Right, and, and Pedro could hurt his leg really badly punting that calf and kick. And like, like I said, Aldo was known for this for years. Ask Faber and Florian about his kicks. You know what I mean? So if you get that good at throwing the kick, then uh, guys in your gym and you also practice uh, checking it and defending against it. You know, I think he's going he's gonna to yeah. be more well-prepared to defend against that kick than anyone Munoz has ever fought. For sure. I mean, Jimmy Rivera wasn't prepared for it at all. And if, if you want tangible proof, watch the Marlon Vera, Cheeto Vera uh, versus Jose Aldo fight. I mean, Cheeto tried that. He tried that exact kick, and, and Aldo shut him right down, checking it uh, multiple times early on. And then Vera didn't go back to it because that's what happens when you get checked. That shit yeah. Hurts. <laughs> yeah, it hurts a lot. If you're kicking the shin, it's going to hurt you. 
Yeah. So um, the odds, I wrote down minus 110, but they've moved moving around a little bit. The best I have here is minus 112 on five dimes or pinnacle. <sighs> um, if, unless you have anything better, I'm playing minus 112 on uh, on pinnacle for... No, for that's the best I got, too, is minus 112. Okay. All right. Actually, I'll do five dimes. I have more money. Yeah, five, five dimes. Account. So minus yeah, 112. Five. Minus 112 for one unit on five dimes. All right. So we're on to oh, the great. main event. Yes, we are. Um, uh, we could talk a lot about how uh, it's a bullshit title fight. <laughs> yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It's really just a number one contender fight. But people have heard all that that whole spiel from everyone in the MMA, you know, talking head. Yeah. Community. Can I can so, I, um, can I just say about yeah. that this? Because, yeah, I don't want to talk about it either because everyone's been bitching about it since it was announced. But I really think that was the way to sell this as a main event. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. That's that's the whole reason it happened. And people people say, "Oh, I would have," uh, and I agree. I, they would that it would have been fine if they just announced it as a regular fight, like if it was just a number one contender fight, because then everyone knows they wanted Lewis to headline Houston. I think it would have been fine. I think they didn't need to make the interim title, but it would be. So such a meme if Derek Lewis wins this fight and becomes an interim title winner in this fight specifically because he is anti-MMA and this belt is being called fake. So it's just a, a weird little coincidence there. But I'll start with, with Cyril Gunn, um, which this is a lot of this is just copied from the podcast we did. Right, we just Volkov, covered him very extensively. Yeah, I edited a little bit to to add uh, some things I saw in that fight. Gone, great footwork and speed, solid ground game, inexperienced, but fights like he has much more experience than he does. I think he's only four years into his MMA career and like six into his Muay Thai uh, training. He has a very mature game and surprisingly good ground game for a former Thai boxer. He's undefeated as a pro in both MMA and Muay Thai. Um, and I talked more about his Muay Thai uh record and how he actually did fight some legitimate good champions in that career and how he was also counted out because of his inexperience and consistently beat the odds to to win um he he's just a prodigy he really is but he has a small he has a big reach advantage in this fight um he came into the ufc after three mma fights being a tko heavyweight champion and defending that twice with two finishes um he's also beaten some Muay Thai heavyweight legends, despite having almost no experience compared to them with like 100 plus fights. Uh, but as far as what he does striking, he's great at using his 83 inch reach and his just overall physique. I mean, he's like Nganu, he's ripped but thinner and less powerful than Nganu, but you know, faster, more technical. That's the word everyone uses for gone technical. And you get tired of hearing it, you might wonder what's it mean, but it's true, he's technical. But I'll get into that. But he hasn't been tested like this uh, before, really. No one who has this type of punching power. His last fight was unique, too. No one who was could match him in technicalness. But Volkov isn't to Gon's level, clearly, despite the experience disadvantage. But he his chin just hasn't been tested. And if Derek Luz lands, his chin will be tested. You better believe it. But... um. He bounces around on the balls of his feet, a la Rose Namajunas, and despite the fact that he's a massive human, 
He hasn't seemed to get anywhere near gassing out, even against Volkov, fighting at a solid pace for a five-round fight. Really good at using his footwork and speed to change angles, always moving laterally, which will be tough for Derek Lewis to deal with. Um, just have to follow him, kind of, with his plodding style. He switches stances naturally, uh, Gan does. He has great stepping knees. One problem of his that... I look at for Lewis to capitalize on in this fight is that he tends to linger in the pocket for, for too long after landing, like he'll land a jab and then he'll step in a little bit and, in kind of process in his head. You see him process saying, okay, I could do this next. I could do this next. I could throw this knee, this uppercut, this right hook, this elbow. And because he doesn't feel the danger that his opponents present. And he's right. He did it versus Volkov. He, he lingered in that pocket and Volkov <clears throat> touched him. A few times, the Volkov isn't a knockout striker. Um, but if Lewis touches him like that, he's going down or and or out. Um, but he also has great step... I already said great step in knees. What am I doing? He doesn't really have power in his hands uh, specifically, but his body kicks are brutal, although we haven't seen him use round body kicks like he... For a while, he used them to great effect against Dante Mays. Like I mentioned with Fazeev versus Diakasi, those body kicks were brutal. This was that, but at heavyweight, they echoed through the whole arena when Gan hit Dante Mays with those uh, round body kicks. Yeah. Um, and his leg kicks are great too. He uses elbows well, close in distance, which is how he KO'd Junior Dos Santos. He has a great jab, but sometimes doesn't build off of it enough, like against Jairzinho Rosenstrike, and he's gotten called boring because of it, just you know, touching his opponent up without actually putting power strikes together. But if he's heard uh, that criticism, and I mean, just because he's had two five-round decisions in a row, he should want to prove people wrong and build off the jab, do as much damage as he can, and hunt for a finish. Um, he has really good defense and accuracy statistically, 63% striking defense, 53% accuracy. Uh, Lewis, meanwhile, has some of the slowest pace in UFC history, but which is unsurprising, but his opponents do as well. Because they're scared of his power, I presume. MMA by the numbers posted this, but his opponents have a record low uh, striking attempt rate against their. Yeah, uh, like, and I think you're absolutely um, right. Why that is? I'm sorry I cut you off before you gave the numbers, but you're good. Yeah, it, it, people fear his power. You don't want to step into it. You know what I mean? So he can slow the fight right down to his pace because everyone's afraid for him to touch you clean. Lewis on offense has a 5.14 distance strike attempt per minute. That ranks 735th out of 746 fighters. So 11th lowest. Um, he has, these are all MMA by the numbers stats. Give him a, uh, it's a shout out for you, him. You, you can find really. his links in our uh, show notes every time. We love that guy. He has 16 wins with just 519 significant strikes landed in the UFC. Only three fighters have at least 15 wins with less significant strikes, fewer significant strikes landed than Derek Lewis. As far as grappling for, for Cyril Gaon, I have no idea where he developed his ground skills so quickly, but he is proficient. I really think it's just that he's a prodigy in everything he does. His coach says that he, he only needs to be shown something once and then he knows how to do it. It sounds like some savant shit. Um, but in his UFC debut, he submitted a BJJ specialist with an arm triangle. Then in his second fight, he beat up Dante Mays for three rounds. And then with like 10 seconds left, dropped down and ankle locked him, which is 
a higher level submission. I mean, as a white belt, you can't, you're not supposed to uh, do leg attacks um, in the second UFC fight. But he should avoid trying to submit Lewis with these or most any submission as Lewis is so explosive. I mean, he's known for, quote unquote, just standing up. But there, it's mostly explosion, but there is some technique to it as he waits for the right time. When his opponents go for submissions like arm triangles or guard passes, he explodes right up. Um, and he can end up on top with that. And Gan does not want to end up on the bottom versus Lewis. Lewis is bigger than him, heavier than him. We haven't seen Gan off his back. Lewis can just really ground and pound him if he ends up on top. If Gan goes for a submission, unless it's right there, like a rear naked choke that Lewis gives up his back for, Gan shouldn't take it. He shouldn't go for that arm triangle, heel hook, arm bar. Um, if he gets, if Gan gets Lewis down, he should use that to tire Lewis out. Uh, you know, just wear on him more and more. So when you get back to standing, he, he's he's weaker and, and do some ground and pound damage. Probably won't get a stoppage with ground and pound against Derek Lewis because he'll eventually explode and get up. But still, wear on him. That's the main thing. Um, but nothing that has him has gone going to his back or like switching to another position like an arm bar or a heel hook. Uh, gone has decent takedowns. And his size and strength make him really difficult to sweep. But his wrestling was kind of revealed lately to not be near up to the same level as his BJJ, or at least his submissions. We haven't seen um, anyone attempt to take him down, first of all. But also we've seen him go, I think he went like 3 of 14 against Rosenstrike. And Rosenstrike has a horrible ground game. Rosenstrike has almost no ground game or takedown defense whatsoever. It's been proving, but it's still very underdeveloped as a as a lifelong kickboxer. So, yeah, and like I said, we haven't seen anyone off his back, seen him off his back. So, with Gon, it's just we know he can submit guys and he can kind of take guys down. That's it. People we need to see the others off him off his back and the and the like and his takedown defense. I think it's possible Lewis could try and lean on him in the clinch if he can catch him. Uh, not catch him with punches, just catch him while Gon tries to circle out and then try to take Gon that way through the clinch. Um, Lewis does attempt to take down sometimes. Um, and we don't know what Gon will do, how he'll be able to defend takedowns that way. But I also think Gon could get Lewis in the clinch and try to wear on him. He'll be too close range. Um, and Lewis is best at takedown defense when... He, when it's traditional Greco-Roman uh, wrestling, you know, when someone's shooting for his hips, a single or a double leg. Um, but he's much weaker to take downs through the clinch because it, it just unstable, unbalances his base more. You've seen him, like, someone will get a single leg on him and he'll hop across the whole ring like an acrobat. <laughs> but, but someone, um, you know, trips him and he falls right down oftentimes. That that really would be the smart way for uh, Cyril Gan to approach that, and also you got to watch out for that uppercut that Lewis knocked out Curtis Blades with. Anyway, Derek Lewis, he's known for the overhand right, but if Gan lingers in the pocket or Lewis can time his entries, Derek Lewis has an underrated lead left hook which has KO power in and of itself. I'd really look out for that punch if I'm Cyril Gan and if I'm stepping into the pocket. 
Um, Lewis says he's been training cardio a lot for this camp. He says it's because he wants to put on an exciting performance for Houston. Usually, and this is me saying this as a fan, usually his fights are quite boring until he gets the finish. If he gets the finish, so I understand him wanting to put on a show for his hometown, but I'm not sure it gives him the best chance of winning to really go forward and, and try to put on a show. It's better for him to sit back, take what comes to him, and then try to capitalize on the at the absolute best moment. If he goes forward, he'll probably just get countered, probably end up chasing Gon around the ring, and really gas out quickly. But he has been working on cardio. We'll see what he does with that that maybe improved cardio in the fight. Also should be noted his back. He's had back issues for years. He's said they're better now. Not all the way better, but a lot better. That's something That's something that could have a factor in this fight as far as cardio and his ability to train. Mostly in the past, the back injury restricted him from training, not from actually doing things in fights, other than the cardio that was left out because he couldn't train. Um, But it is interesting that he wants to uh, be exciting, and if he does go out there striking more than usual and keep it up for a few rounds, it should be fun. My worry is he will gas himself out throwing stuff like those jumping switch kicks that he sometimes does, um, he needs to stick to his basic punches. I mean, the occasional kick, because he can set up his overhand right off of his kicks. But he needs to stick to the basic punches, and he has a better chance of knocking out Cyril than the odds suggest, I believe, slightly. Because the odds have gotten wide. Yeah. Uh, Cyril is a minus 400 favorite. Uh, Lewis comes back at plus 300, but we know Derek Lewis. We know he doesn't win... I mean, he has won decisions, but those are three-round decisions against decisions against guys like either Latifi, um, which that was a fight with only 15 total strikes thrown because it was just all spent on the ground. Um, but against Sirgan, who's a technical striker, who's going to stay out there at range, going to poke and prod at him, going to try to probably take the wind out of his sails, hit him in the body, hit him in the legs gas him out and then finish him which he could finish him with a body shot that's a very likely scenario i see but i don't think the value is there on gone by finish because it's like plus 110 barely plus money gone by decision plus 200 is interesting because uh he's had a couple decisions in a row now but my play is maybe you expected it. I played this last time he fought against Curtis Blades, even though I fully expected Curtis Blades to wrestle fuck him and maybe get a ground and pound finish. My play is Derek Lewis by knockout, which I got uh, at five dimes. The odds are plus 419. And I'm doing that for four tenths of a unit. 0.4, two fifths, whatever you want to call it. 0.4 units. Plus 419. Oh, well. Let me let me just say I agree with that, and uh, I can tell you why when we get into our segments here. All right. Okay. Um. Yeah. Segments. Let's go. Or, All right. Yeah, you want to start with uh, "Don't Be a Pussy" parlay or the "Walking the Dog"? Um, we do "Walking the Dog" first, don't let's, we? Let's, All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, usually. then I'll go with mine because I gave it away. Um. I got Derek Lewis in this fight. If you look at the odds, they opened way different, and then the money just changed so much. You know, um, I think these odds are inflated out of control. Some of the numbers you can get him at now, I think it would be stupid not to bet on him for. Um, my my other pick, which uh, you'll probably laugh at, but uh, 
I think there's some value in uh, Ed Herman for that fight if he makes it through the first round. But <laughs> but but I'm really uh, going with Lewis as my dog this week. I was gonna you, you stole that was you went with Lewis, so I was gonna go with Herman for for my walk in the dog pick. Oh yeah, so we agree on that. That's there. cool. I think if one, Herman makes it, yeah. Well, now you stole yeah. now you stole mine, so I just have to go with Michael Chiesa, which is boring plus one hundred dog. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't th- I didn't think <laughs> you'd agree with me on Herman. <laughs> no, I mean I think Menafield wins, but he only has one way to win really, and I think Herman can survive the storm and 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 win later. All right, so then why don't you go first on the don't be a pussy parlay? Okay, DBAPP, don't be a pussy parlay. Starting off with Johnny Munoz Jr., we didn't discuss him, but his opponent sucks. Um Miles Johns, I'm not going to trust Mental Cop. So, that Johnny Munoz Jr., Miles Johns, um Carolina Kovalkiewicz, Rafael Fiziev, and Michael Chiesa. That's my don't be a pussy parlay. Shit, I got damn near the same thing, but to switch it up a little, instead of Chiesa, I'm going to take Sung Young Dog instead of Chiesa. So we got four of the same ones, and then I switched up the fifth, so we're a little bit different. But yeah, those are... All right, here, I'll switch... I'll switch mine up then. I'll take off Johnny Munoz Jr. And to get better odds, I'll throw in Jose. All right, cool. Because, yeah, we uh, we didn't discuss it on the show, but you and I did beforehand that uh, we both think the Munoz Jr. is a is a pretty good lock there. Yeah. I, I hate saying the word lock. I, you know right. that. But um, I think he wins just minus 250. I'm not. Yeah, we won't call it a lock, but we'll say a very smart decision to go that way. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, yeah, just odds are appropriate. He has that, like at least an eighty percent, seventy-eight percent chance of winning. All right, all that's right. it for this week. But um, I am gonna get a hold of Brent this weekend. I wanted to give him. That was a tough loss for the guy. You know what I mean? And I'm sure he didn't want to come yeah. on and discuss it right away. But there's no card the following weekend. So if we have him on next Wednesday, it's actually a perfect opportunity to just spend some time and talk to him. That would be great because, I mean, I've talked to you about this, but I want to tell the people I have a fight I want to discuss next week that I'll be taping uh, in the during the week off. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a play that I see value on. We've done this before with early episodes to get out there before the line changes. So uh, stay tuned for that. So we will have an episode out yep, next Yeah, we week. will have an episode, um, uh, despite there not being a card, to get out those early eyes, and hopefully we'll have Brent Primus here with us. Yep. All right, thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week.